Have they started sewing a woman in half yet? Welcome to the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, episode 12, We Get Mad Because We Can't Read. My name is Matthew Conium, and I'd like to start the show with a joke. A man walks into a tavern and sees a horse serving behind the bar. He calls over the manager and says, how come you've got a horse working behind the bar? And the manager says, that's not a horse. Well, it's time now for me to introduce your podcast pals. First, the Marx Brothers Council podcast's answer to Bob Gassell, Bob Gassell. Bob's childhood nickname was Zeppo, owing to the fact that the angle of his forehead, when viewed in profile, resembles the Hindenburg disaster. And he's such a fan of the Marx Brothers that he compulsively hides jewellery in tins of sardines and once refused to watch the big store unless Rudolf Hess parachuted into Scotland. Bob Gassell. Hi, everybody. And uh, this is where I will later insert the very funny comment. It's going to go right here. (laughs) And standing in for Noah Diamond this month is Noah Diamond. Noah is the most interesting man in the world, it says here. And when he's not writing his own lead-in blurb, he's rediscovering, reassembling, and restaging the Lost Marx Brothers musical, I'll Say She Is. Noah has been called a true knight of the theatre, owing to the fact that he once spent the night in a theatre. And he earned his childhood nickname on account of his habit of carrying his money around in a grouch bag. Ever since, he's been known to all of his friends as Bago. Noah Diamond. I'll say he is. Thank you, Matthew. And as well as a Marx Brothers fan, our guest this month is a screenwriter, producer, and director who, with his partner, Larry Karaszewski, uh, has written some really crap biopics. No! Has been responsible for some really good biopics, uh, including uh, Ed Moon, The Man on the Wood, and The People vs. Problem Child, which has been rightly described as the Citizen Kane of movies. You know him as Scott Alexander. He is, of course, Scott Alexander. Well, it's a pleasure, and I feel like you you three are old friends, even though I wouldn't recognize you if I bumped into you on the street. And let me just clarify, uh, Problem Child was a biopic? Uh, Not not technically. I'll get sued if if you call it a biopic. (laughs) But it's it's loosely based on Richard Nixon's childhood. (laughs) It was was inspired by a real story. Okay, well, before we get on to the, uh, the the main subject, we always like to ask our guests uh, their their origin story, uh, when they first discovered the Marx Brothers, how they discovered the Marx Brothers, and 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 what effect it had on them. So, uh, can I throw that to you first? Oddly, like a lot of other people on the Facebook page, I I seem to have discovered the Marx Brothers through the big store in Casablanca. I, I don't know what it is about those two titles that come up the most. Uh, my, my parents, God bless them, uh, took me to a double feature, uh, when I was about, I'll say eight years old saying, Scotty, we think you'll like this. And, and I had started to make super eight movies and these Mm. guys are really funny. And it was a special outing with just me and my folks and not my siblings. And I just fell in love with them there. And I, from third grade onward, I became obsessed uh, my mom had to sew me a a Groucho style. What, what, what's the uh, frock coat? A frock coat, a, yeah. A cutaway. Yeah. Well, she made me one out of felt, and I and, and then I could run around uh, the playground with my with my grease paint mustache that she applied and be, and be Groucho <laughs> Marx. And then uh, th- this this uh, was the heyday of the Marxes. I discovered them around probably seventy one. 72 and this is when all hell was breaking loose and i grew up in los angeles and 
there were so many revival houses that you could go see a Marx double feature every night of the week. Sometimes triple features. So I once even went to a quadruple feature. And I recruited a few friends. For, for, this is still elementary school to be my Marx co- cohorts. I don't know mm-hmm. if they loved them as much as me, but they went along with it. <laughs> and we would, and my parents would let us, you know, take the bus into Hollywood, you know, which is, which is a little dangerous for, you know, 10 year olds. And, uh, I, I just wanted to see every Marx movie. Uh, I, I wanted to be Groucho. I would perform Groucho and skits. When I got to junior high school, I did the Tootsie Fruity scene with Harold Goldberg as, as Chico. And unfortunately it, it was on an outdoor stage during nutrition and there was no, uh, no amplification. So it's just all the kids eating their snacks and we're trying to do the Tootsie Fruity scene and no one can hear us. And, you know, I, I'm pretty sure the, uh, uh, uh Chico's cart was, was just, a, a shopping cart that we had tried to <laughs> cover up and make it look, look like something important. And it, 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 it wasn't one of my stronger moments. Did you ever try seeking Groucho out being in the same area? I don't think I was that creative. I, I, I looked at Groucho as, as the God on top of Mount Olympus. Uh, one time my mom was just walking through Beverly Hills and bumped into Groucho and said, my son is your biggest fan. Can I have your autograph? He said, sure. But he says, I'm very old. You write his name. I'll write my name. So I, I have my mom's writing to Scott and then I, then it says from Groucho. Nice. Yeah, so so it has it has been it is authenticated, you know, <laughs> you know, because if assuming my mom was telling me the truth, um, yeah, and your then, mom <laughs> collaborated with Groucho on that autograph. Yes, um, and then and then there's my my legendary crashing the premiere of Animal Crackers story, yeah. where you know Steve Sawyer at UCLA uh, created a you know a phony baloney you know radical group that was insisting that Universal. Uh, <laughs> You know, let let animal crackers out of its prison, and Universal felt pressure and struck a print, and they decided to just show it in Westwood, um, which was just you know uh, right outside of UCLA, where which was the headquarters for all the Groucho radicals, and see what would happen. And so word went out that there was going to be a giant premiere, and Groucho himself was going to show up at this premiere, and I went crazy. And I begged my parents, we have to go, we have to go. And my parents said, well, we can go, but we're not, we don't work in showbiz. It's a, it's a fancy premiere. It's Klieg lights and all that. And we don't have, we don't have tickets, Scott. If you want to go just to see Groucho get out of his car, but that's, that's all we can promise you. And I said, sure. And then my little sister said, well, I want to go. And, and I got all pissy saying, well, Carrie, why do you, you don't even, you don't even like them. You don't even care. She says, I want to go to this big show you guys are going to. Ah. So it just became this whole thing from my mom saying, come on, just let, let your sister go. So, so it's my mom drives my sister and I to the, um, the, it was, yeah, yeah, it was the UA theater on Lindbrook in Westwood. And, uh, my dad was coming from work. My dad was a stockbroker. So he's, a, he's in a suit and my mom is, a, you know, a mom with two kids. So the four of us meet there and it was complete mayhem. The crowd was primarily college-age kids. Everyone's dressed as Groucho. A lot of guys in Captain Spaulding outfits with the hat. Uh, everyone is singing Hooray for Captain Spaulding, and someone has shown up with a truckload of 
boxes of animal crackers, which everyone is throwing at each other. And it's just, it's just like this big crazy party outside. And it's a bit of a free for all. And I, I'm tiny. I'm, you know, I'm just a short little Jew and my sister's tiny and it's kind of overwhelming. It's exciting and overwhelming and scary and exhilarating. And then, uh, but, you know, a bunch of limos pull up at the, at the edge of the red carpet and everyone starts screaming, oh my God, oh my God, it's him, it's him, it's him. And the door opens and the crowd rushes the carpet in the car and I can't see a freaking thing because I'm small. And It's funny how that mirrors the opening to Animal Crackers. Everybody excited with Groucho showing up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And um, and I, and I there's movement. I can, t- I can see that there's bodies getting out of a car, but I can't see a thing. And I, and I start screaming. I can't see him. I can't see him. My dad says, here. My dad picks me up, puts me on. I mean, my, my parents were like so stubby this night. Puts me on his shoulders. Can you see him now? Can you see him now? I go, no. It's just like, it's just, it, I mean, it is Day of the Locust. It is just the mob <laughs> that's just about to swallow up Groucho Marx. And I, I'm assuming just a bit of panic broke out with Groucho and his handlers with him just saying, get me the fuck out of here. Just get me into that building before I get trampled. <laughs> I mean, it, it was chaos. And so they just rush him past and I'm going, where is he? Where is he? And then the door shuts and he's inside. And I break into tears and I go, I didn't see him. And I, my parents were saying, well, you saw him a little. I go, no, I didn't. I didn't. And, I, and I'm, I'm on the floor crying. And it's just, it, it is the tragedy of all time. I, this, was my, this was my chance to meet Groucho Marx and I didn't get to see him. Ah! And so my dad looks down and he says, okay, we're about to do something. And you guys have to shut up. And we're like, what do you mean? He says, shut <laughs> up. Just don't talk. And my dad's in a suit. And everyone else there looks like a college kid. So my dad just, my, my, my dad can be very confident when it's appropriate and when it's inappropriate. And my dad just marches us onto the red carpet and walks up to the door. And my dad, there's a, there's a girl at the door with a clipboard and, and he glances down the clipboard. Our name is Alexander. And he's, he's looking for a party of four. And he says, Anderson, we're here. And my sister starts to go, but daddy, that's not our, and he slams his hand over her mouth. <laughs> Just, we're going in. <laughs> and we walk right in. And I cannot believe he has just pulled the scheme off. I don't know whatever happened to the Anderson family. <laughs> and we are inside the doors and it's, and it's, it's entering Oz and, and we get our seats. Um, Groucho is at the back of the theater, uh, a little, a little roped off, and he he he's got his little group, and so I, I was too scared to go up to Groucho, but I could absolutely gape at him. Um, then there's the 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 goofy little sidebar story, uh, which is uh, there's a very 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 old man about four rows ahead of us, and people keep coming up to him, and I I turn to just the, the whoever's next to me, and I go, do you know who that is? And he says, that's that's the director of the movie. And I, I knew his name was Victor Hierman. And so I, I, I go to my mom, you think I can get his autograph? She goes, sure, here, here's a pen. Uh, and so I walk over and I meet Victor Hierman, who's a thousand years old. And I shake his hand and he's very nice. And he can't believe some nine-year-old wants his autograph, which is pretty crazy, you know, because he was born in 1700 and, and I know who he is. And um, <laughs> he, he autographs my program, which I still have. Um, and then I go back to the seat. Um, 
and then my sister, who is, who, who is she? She's delightful, and we're still best friends. And um, I don't want her to come off really poorly in this story, though she does. And, and then she says, well, I want his autograph. And I get indignant because I'm the, like, you know, it's sibling stuff. I go, you don't even know who he is. What's his name? You tell me his name. She says, I want his autograph. If you got his autograph, I, I get it too. You know, she's like a little seven-year-old. And it's like, well, fine. Go get, uh, yeah, if, sure. Fine. If you, you don't even know his other credits. You don't even know what he did. Uh, fine. Go get his, I don't care. Go get his autograph. So she goes down to Victor Hearman. <laughs> And then, and then I can see her like haggling with him. And then he pulls out a pen and he autographs her program. And then she grabs a pen from him. And then a fight breaks out. <laughs> and I, I'm like, "What is going on here?" And I can I can hear them yelling at each other. And she says, "It's my it's my mom's pen." He says, "No, little girl, I, I took it out of my pocket. No, it's my mom's. I saw my mom take it out. It's and care was wrong because I gave my mom's pen back to mom. This is Victor Herman's pen. So anyway, it's just." This little girl beating up a ninety-year-old man. Uh, I think she finally like it just she got it from him. It's like he just he he couldn't win this one. Um, Scott, was this the famous occasion when Victor Herman locked you and your sister in miniature cells to make you? <laughs> I no, I, I was delightful with him. He had no he had no issues with me. No. Did you ask him who the doubles were during the uh, blackout scene? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Uh, and then Groucho, and, and is this Groucho, when you got the idea for Problem Child? <laughs> yes. And then uh, I mean, the, you know, the capper of the evening was Groucho went on stage and he did twenty minutes, and it was all it was all the greatest hits. But I remember the most is you know he told he told the the bathrobe story, hmm. you know, because it was it was the right crowd. He could end it. He could end the story properly, which is Harry Ruby popping out of Captain Spalding's trunk and saying, "Where's my fucking bathrobe?" Hmm. You know, and sometimes the language gets toned down in that story. Was Zeppo there? I have no idea. I mean, there, there, there is one nice still from that evening, which is Groucho and and uh, Victor Hearman. Actually, I, I remember exactly where they were standing because uh, there was a, there was a, a a mural on one of the walls, and I would have I would have thought that if Zeppo were there, he would have posed in that picture. Mm-hmm. He was probably the guy sat next to you who told you who Victor Herman was. <laughs> what? Well, how do you know that, Mister? Uh, well, what a great story! Yeah. That's, that's quite something. It, it really, it, it was really it's magical. Just possible. It's, it's just possible that that a member of the Anderson family might be listening, or somebody who knows the Anderson <laughs> family might be listening. If by any chance you're out there, do get in touch and, and let us know if you had any problems getting in. That <laughs> but one of the things that we, uh, we we like to do on these podcasts is uh, is look at some of the famous books that have been uh, have been written about the Marx Brothers or written by the Marx Brothers. Whenever possible, we'll we'll try and track down the authors and, and get them to talk. But uh, what I what I wanted to do this time was look at um, the Marx Brothers by by Carl Crichton, by the late Carl Crichton, which was the first major book written about the Marx Brothers. And uh, for such an important book, it's it's one that um, has sort of almost been forgotten about. And uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you all is, is, is how many times have you read it? Because I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit that this is actually the first time in preparation for this, this recording that I've actually sat down and read the thing cover to cover. And, and I, I don't know why, really, because it's such a, such a key text. Same with me, first time. I read it. Um, it was 
the second Marx Brothers book I ever read after Adamson's. And very early on in my time with the Marx Brothers, I found it at the library. And I, and that was, and I did read the whole book then, but it was so early in my interest in the Marx Brothers that I remember on first read, I was probably, you know, about 10 years old, feeling a little impatient with it because it never, you know, it takes so long for the book to get to the part of their career that I knew about at that point, which was the films. Um, it really rushes through the early film years in a very cursory way. Of course, just a couple years after that, nothing would interest me more than a long look at the stage years, but that's how early it was. And then hmm. in more recent years, I've revisited parts of the book that were relevant to specific things I was working on and researching. Um, you mean like, like, the, like Cinderella Girl? Cinderella Girl, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, uh, the Broadway years and the lead into them is, is the part of the book that I, I know pretty well. But um, the rest of it, I hadn't really looked at since then. And it was delightful. I was really very pleased to have a reason to have to read the whole book this uh, just in the past uh, couple of weeks, because it's, it's wonderful. I think like you, Noah, um, back then I was more interested in reading about the films yeah. than about their history. So when I would read Adamson or some of these other books, it would have a, you know, a sort of a sketch of their early years. And I always felt that, that was enough for me. I didn't, wasn't really into getting much more detail on that. And then I guess when the scrapbook came out, that sort of filled in a lot of the blanks for me. So I never really felt any desire to go back to what I thought was like, this was the first sketch of the history of them and everything else subsequent to that clarified what was in the earlier book. So I never really felt to go back to the first draft of their history. I'm, I'm, I think I'm in the same boat as, as you guys where it never occurred to me to read it. I, like everybody, I read Adamson first and I, I, and I really focused on the, on the movie books. Um, Marx Brothers at the movies, uh, Leonard's Leonard Maltin's books. Um, and, and I did read, I did read Groucho and me because I was obsessed with Groucho and, uh, I was particularly obsessed with that one book because it had a photograph of the brothers shooting pool and Groucho didn't have makeup on. And yeah. it was the only photograph I'd ever seen of the real Groucho Marx. And I used to, uh, draw a mustache and eyebrows onto that picture in pencil to prove <laughs> to myself that that was really him. And then I would erase it. <laughs> And I come back the next day and I draw the mustache back on again. And I basically wore a hole through that picture. Uh, and then, and then like Bob's saying, when, when the scrapbook came out, um, it, it filled in so much. I, I didn't read the book in, in, until I was writing uh, my bio script a million years later. And so it, it was, you know, obligatory to read it. And I don't think it's even been reissued much, has it? I was I was talking to Bob just before we started recording, and he's he's got the the American first edition. I've got the British first edition. I, I've only ever seen old editions of it. Has has it been reprinted much? I don't yeah. think so. There's a paperback version from like '53. I don't know anything past that. But yeah, I'm sure there is. You know, there's there's no forward to it. There's no introduction. Nothing. There's we really don't know how we put this together. What we assume we. He talked. He interviewed them, or he asked for their input. Do we know exactly yeah. how he how he gathered the information? Every so often, he quotes well, them directly, doesn't he? Like his Groucho says, and uh, mm-hmm. and there's a little. little bit. So my my guess is that he does. Yeah, he, that he sat down and interviewed them all. I mean, I think that's um, well, somebody on this podcast has 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 spread the rumor that the that that the boys 
sort of hired him to write the book so it could be used as the basis for a movie. And I don't know if that's true or false, but in, if it's true, then that means he certainly he had time with all with all five of them. That that would be me, and yes, that's something I'm yeah. I'm uh, I'm going to come to in a moment. But uh, uh, before we get onto that, I was I I don't know maybe if Harpo speaks and Groucho and me hadn't been written. Uh, perhaps we would we would uh, cling to it much more then. It's possibly Harpo in particular, and also Groucho to some extent, came along and sort of stole its thunder with the with the childhood stories and things. I mean, if it, if this was our only access to those childhood stories, mm. I think it would be a cherished book, wouldn't it? Yeah, and this is the it's... only one where I guess the only project where all five of them theoretically collaborated on on something, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's interesting to see what. In contrast with Harpo Speaks and Groucho and me, there are some secrets that they weren't keeping a secret at this point, I guess, when they spoke to Crichton for this book. There are certain instances where names that become fictionalized in Groucho's book and Harpo's book, yes. are the, the actual names are here. Um, the mythology is just taking shape here, I guess. And I mean, I, I was impressed rereading it, how much of the key mythology is all there. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was really cool, but I, I was amused at, at how certain stories were toned down for a 1950s audience. Yeah, and then in the later books, then the stories get sleazier and and dirtier. Do you picture Groucho telling the stories much like he did to Noble? But this, this is the <laughs> yeah. 1950 uh, write up of it. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Harpo had a nervous reaction to that first performance at Henderson's. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Where's the shit? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, when I was reading it, I kept thinking of the scrapbook because um, the same way the scrapbook is full of valuable stuff, but it's often dismissed for a couple of reasons. Oh, it has transcription errors in it. Um, so therefore, the whole book uh, can't be taken seriously. With, with Crichton, it's inaccuracies. People say, oh, well, it's largely fictionalized. Mm-hmm. It's it's basically a novel. So, okay. But it's also the ex- an example of a very good writer who spent time with the Marx Brothers, um, you know, circa 1950, and recorded his impressions of their impressions of their story. It's tremendously valuable. And even though there are certainly factual errors in it or or deliberate um, mythologizing, um, you know, there's stuff like the way Minnie and Frenchie are depicted, such warm, vivid portraits yeah, of mm-hmm. them. That clearly came from the impressions of the Marx Brothers, you know, and the way they characterize their parents. And you don't really find that anywhere else this vividly. Yeah, they all, yeah. I mean, their love, their love of Minnie is, is, is on every page. So I, I think, yes, I think that's the, is the key point with this one is, is that it's, um, you, you have to, you have to remember, I think that in 1951, the idea that anybody who would want to buy a book about the Marx Brothers would want some kind of detailed, meticulous, fact-heavy, you know, kind of Robert Bader-style history. I mean, that 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 kind of an audience, I don't think was 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 even dreamed of. Um, if you're going to buy a book about the Marx Brothers, you're a Marx Brothers fan, and you want to have an in- yeah. to read an enjoyable story that you're going to find yeah. funny. So what so what they've done is they've got. A, a very reliable showbiz journalist with a with a good turn of phrase uh, and a proven track record of writing showbiz profiles. They've all sat down and told them their story with, I think, with the specific aim of of building up that mythology of 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 making people laugh. And and if that involves embellishing a story or or conflating 
two events into one or something, then, you know, who cares? Who, who would ever care is, is surely what they would have thought. It's surprising to me that the majority of the book is about them being on the road in the, in the early days. Yes. And I don't know if an, if an audience in 1950 really wanted to read 250 pages of that. Well, I think they would want to know what they were like as children and, you know, were they as zany in real life and all that sort of stuff. I think the idea is for it to almost to be like another, like a, like a film, you know, like a, another production of theirs, uh, in more in, in tone, in the same tone as, as what they do professionally than, a you know, a, a more modern style of, of, um, factual history. So I think what they, what they've ended up with is, is absolutely what they wanted. But why did they change the date of Minnie's death? Yeah, that is so weird. And, and for for the they wanted it to be at the end. They wanted it to be basically the end of the story. Fine, they wanted to, and I get it. I'm a storyteller. They wanted to end it with the death of mm. Minnie, which actually no, but no, because Frenchie lives on. So that's that's actually not <laughs> Bob. You're I wrong. There's, no, but more, there's more book after that. But I'm jumping ahead here, but just for the for the listeners, just because it's cuckoo for cocoa puffs. Minnie lived to see her sons as movie stars in the coconuts, and then she died about ten minutes later. Yep, and which is which is Matt, which is magnificent. It was it's perfect. For some reason, in this crazy book, she lives on. <laughs> yeah, after they go and, to California, and now they yeah, moved to yeah. California, and now there's all these made up Minnie's visiting them in L.A. Their Harpo's flying back on when he's not shooting. He doesn't have uh, any shooting days next week. He's flying back to New York and he's having kugel and sauerkraut with his parents. It's like, what is this? And it's going on for years. Yep. It's so bizarre. Yeah. I don't... It's, it's interesting that Crichton's book does kind of fall apart in the last chapter. It's, it's so lovingly and carefully told. Um, and then there's this kind of, I don't know, it seemed like he had a list of things he wanted to make sure he got into the book. Oh, I, like we got to talk about Harpo's trip to Russia. Um, which feels so tacked on to a story that's not really about their movie star days. It's understandable how he might confuse Frenchie being on the dock in Monkey Business or Night at the Opera. That's yes. but but to say that they're trying that they were trying to hide it from Thalberg, you know, that sort of <laughs> makes it yes. fall apart on that on that side. <laughs> and and that is when you realize just how far you can trust yeah. Crichton and his sources on, on some of these details. Well, 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 well again, now they're now now we're getting the date of the the death date of the other parent wrong. Because Frenchie died in 1933. Yeah, right. He can't He can't be in Night the Opera. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> you would think with the five brothers, they all had a, they all had the opportunity to proof the book. They all read it before it yes. came out. And did any of the five say, well, Pop wasn't really alive then? That's what you have to wonder, yeah. Because I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, he had a mountain of material. And, and I think he does just... Um, you know occasionally i think it isn't falsification and it, and it is a mistake um I, I, as you as i've said before i have a theory that when he's talking about humorous which again he, he puts much later than it than it happened but yes. you know, yeah so do, so do other people uh, i i'm sure that the quote he gives from groucho groucho has wandered off the track and is talking about love happy he talks about a film that's uh like chaplin-esque pathos uh, just me without my brothers. I'm sure he's talking about Harpo in Love Happy there, which is which they've just done. It's their most recent film. They've just made it. 
mm-hmm. uh, and I think he's he was meant to be talking about humor risk. He's wandered off the point, and I think Crichton has has missed that somehow, and has put that in as a comment about humor risk. And I think he probably was struggling with a mountain of material and and did make these mistakes. But yes, you do have to wonder: did they proof it? Maybe they didn't. I mean, you know, I'm sure Chico didn't. You know, I mean, maybe they just didn't bother. Another interesting thing is that there are. There's virtually no dates or years ever mentioned in this. Uh, when I'm when I was reading this, I'm like, well, how wait, what year is this? Is this 1914? Is this 1921? I was sort of like, mm. totally lost track of where they were in their lives, and it was only when they hit like, okay, Gumbo's going in the World War One. I'm like, okay, now I know where we are. Or, you know, it was very hard to decipher exactly how old they were and what year we were at at any point because no, mm. no year or date is ever mentioned. I wondered if that was to some extent deliberate. Maybe Crichton realized there was a discrepancy in the official ages as given, you know, to the yes, studios. And yeah. maybe that as soon as I start imposing a chronology on this, people are going to realize the math hasn't added up all this time. But, but sometimes it's just de- deliberate for no purpose that he, he puts yeah. Home Again after Cinderella Girl. Yeah. And Home Again ran for four years. So. Hmm. All, I mean, the brothers know which show came first. Yeah, there uh, that could be a political, like a um, we're going to stack the in order of ascending triumph, you know, so uh, that it. Oh, yes. that's interesting. That's interesting. It makes a clearer yeah. narrative somehow. There's a lot of. I mean, they completely write Ned Wayburn out of the early history, and and in order to make Minnie the creative um, mm. force behind the the comedy act and. Usually, the motives seem pretty transparent when those kind of changes. But 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 uh, wait, I'm trying to remember. But they they do credit Uncle Al with writing Home Again, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That thing of the the paper from the butcher shop. Yeah, yeah. That's a a detail that has lived on. Further evidence for for I think um, the fact that he interviewed all five of them. Uh, probably separately um, is it's interesting to see how they each get their their little section and he's been very careful I think and very fair so in particular with with um, Harper you get the Madame Shang story but I'm thinking, you know, where's Seymour Mintz? You know, where's where's all the other great stories yeah. in Harpo Speaks? But he's had, you know, he's had to very carefully limit one person's contribution. And and so, for instance, there there are some some very charming little gummo chapters um, that, that you 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 don't get anywhere else. You get this lovely story of him uh, selling paraffin boxes and uh, and mm-hmm. Frenchie trying to undercut him. And there's a whole chapter about that. So he's obviously, he's like, right, now now I have to do the gummo chapter. What can, oh, I know, I'll use that story about paraffin boxes. So it's really, really sweet. But it, but it does lead yeah. on to the, the other observation, which is that I think this is the closest we get to the most mourned non-Marx artifact of all time, Chico Speaks. Uh, Chico's, you know, Chico's autobiography that he that he never bothered to write. More that, more even than Maxine's book, there are two or three chapters here that, okay, you know, they say he rather than I, but they're they're basically Chico speaks. Um, the, the chapter four, somewhat concerning Chico. Chapter ten, Minnie makes a purchase. Um, are basically Chico speaks. Very true. That's and, and a lot of figures who are familiar to us from other books, um, but they're familiar only by name. Um, Crichton, I, I hope because of insights he got from talking to the brothers, he gives us such great color, like cousin Lou Sheen, who we always, we know Lou Sheen teamed up with Chico and they had an act for a while. And, 
but but we don't have any sense of who Lu Xin really was. Crichton tells us that uh, he he once bowed politely and said good morning to a goat who bought at him in the from an animal <laughs> act in a theater. That's great. That tells us more about who that guy was than any other source. There's a nice throwaway detail which which says to me, well, obviously he interviewed the, the guys, which is at at some point Minnie takes them into a restaurant and they've never seen menus before. Yeah. Which, which I, I, this smells like a Harpo story. Yes. Yeah. But, but that was, that was delightful because it, 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 that one sentence said a lot. Yeah. I said, the, usually in these boarding houses, the landlady would just dump the food on the table. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I also, I, I really appreciate reading the legend for the first time, you know, reading about the Spanish flu, uh, which is one of my favorite Mark stories and mm-hmm. reading, reading about Art Fisher naming them. And it's like, okay, this is where it came from. Yes. And some lovely dialogue, you know, about, um, the, the, you know, his, uh, exactly how, how that was worded, not just the fact that he did it, you know, but the, 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 the kind of the insider eye on it which you know whether it's true or not is is nonetheless it, it just it's nice to get it from the horse's mouth i wonder about that he has fisher like very pompous referring to himself in the third person and mm. he says like fisher will precede the hurricane yes in reference not wanting to follow the marks brothers i love that i hope that is how art fisher talked <laughs> he, he also in terms of the beginning of all the mythology they he makes a point of saying zeppo is funny and there are some nice little Zeppo stories as well, actually, aren't there? There's some, some very funny things about him uh, accosting people in the street and, uh, uh, and pretending <laughs> to know them and then uh, and, and stuff like that. And there's, there's some good little Zeppo stories in it. And then I, I started making a list of things that were just crazy wrong or crazy weirdly omitted. And then another list of of the stories that just got bigger and bigger through through the subsequent books um one 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 of my favorite stories um which is just kind of tossed away in in, in this book is is opening night of alsatias with minnie breaking her leg mm-hmm. you know which by the later books is this it's basically captain spaulding's entrance with four nubians carrying in minnie you know in front of a cheering crowd <laughs> and in 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 this book i, I think it's them just like bringing her in back through the back door before the show starts. It is very interesting to, to watch the stories uh, grow through time, isn't it? If you start here and follow some of them along. Yeah, no, it says in the book here that the Wolcott and the others, they had, they planned to come to the show. Wasn't the legend yeah. always that they were supposed to go somewhere else that they changed their mind at the last minute? Yeah, that's. I mean, that legend has been debunked uh, since uh, Hector Arce did a did a nice job dismantling that long ago. But yeah, the Alsatia's chapter is interesting for the the usual legends that it doesn't include. You know, yeah, it doesn't have the you know rescheduled opening. It also correctly identifies James Bury by name, although gets his biography wrong. It leaps out his chorus girl. Yeah, that whole um, legend of the chorus girl who Groucho calls Ginny. Uh, yeah, that's not in it either. I'll say she, it's actually a much more accurate version of that story than we would get, un- I guess, until Hector Arce. Hmm. The one that really interests me is is um, the story of, of uh, Frenchie's prowess or lack thereof as a tailor, 
which is one of those stories that always kind of, <laughs> you know, kind of niggled with me a bit, you know, because these were people living on the breadline. You know, there's just no way that, that you know, the, the popular image of, of him as this comically inept tailor making suits with different size legs and things, you know, uh, could could be true. And it's interesting, the, the version of it in here, if you if you kind of half read it if you if you read it without giving it your full attention it seems like it is that that same story but actually it isn't quite it is slightly different um Crichton writes uh disdaining such an ordinary device as a tape measure papa had his own way of gauging the dimensions of a victim he stood off at a distance of five or six feet and regarded the client with interest uh blah 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 blah, blah. after scratching hasty pencil marks on a piece of paper he would then resume his gaze of the object at intervals he would come forward to punch up the shoulder of the happy customer or yank his vest into place if the old suit of the patron happened to be a bad fit the new one would most certainly sag in the same places in other words He's actually quite good. He's just hit and miss. He he does it in a in an, an unorthodox way. And if the original suit isn't very good, then the new one won't be either. But it's it doesn't say that he's just rubbish at it, and he produces these ridiculous cat-handed suits. That doesn't come in until Groucho and Me, and obviously Groucho and Me is written as a uh, at least in part as a humorous book. So it's it's Groucho that then runs with it and says you could always tell somebody who had a suit made by Frenchie because the legs were different lengths and so on <laughs> and then of course in Harpo Speaks Harpo Speaks is 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 constrained by Groucho to some extent so he then kind of tells the same story as Groucho but not as a comic routine but as a as a statement of fact so it's fascinating to watch the evolution of that story I mean come on he's the worst tailor in New York City we all know this <laughs> You gotta use a tape measure. You just gotta. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's an unorthodox hit and miss tailor. But the idea that he would last two minutes in New York when you know there are so many people out of work who could do it better, <laughs> making these ridiculous comedy suits. My favorite story, and um, I, I told this to my family earlier today, and they were just totally shocked by it. it was a story of uh, Groucho uh, taking the girl to the show. In the blizzard and oh. leaving, her leaving her stranded yeah. there. No, that story is chilling. <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered what sauerkraut candy would taste like. That's, that was he was always told with sauerkraut candy as the what he had spent that money on. I mean, to be to be fair to Groucho, it, it is a moment of self revelation. In the telling of the story, Groucho knows he's not going to come off good. The story that I love in the book that I don't think I've encountered elsewhere is after they have their first great success at the palace and this sort of down on his luck old Shakespearean actor approaches Harpo at the stage door and asks him for money. And he says, you know, you've had a great success and I'm sure you'll have many more, but one day you might be where I am now. And Harpo gives him $10 and Crichton writes that Harpo was two blocks uptown before he realized that this was in some way symbolic of Broadway success, because the old man would never make the mistake of approaching a failure coming out of the palace. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful uh, showbiz mm. moment that mm. uh, has a lot of truth. It's in it. lovely. I, it's completely made up, Noah. I'm sure, but, but it has a... <laughs> it smells like ghostwriting from a mile away. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I guess it does smell like ghostwriting, but... Um, but there's a show business truth in there, ghostwriting from somebody who, who knows something about the world he's depicting. 
an old bearded Shakespearean actor. Yeah. I think I saw that guy yesterday in the theater district. One thing, one thing this book really hammered home for me, which I never really stopped to think about, was how big a part Chicago played in their, in their history. You know, I'm a native Chicago, and it never really struck me when I was living there how much of their career and how much of their form, formulative years came in the Chicago area. I had always just hmm. thought of it as like a, a temporary stopover, but it was basically, you know, where they grew from boys to men. They lived there as a uh, little longer than they lived on 93rd Street. Wow. This is more of an omission, but th- this may be only post-Bader. Uh, I wasn't really aware until Bob's book about what a big deal blacklisting was in their career and how and how they never played the major circuits. And it's, it's, it's alluded to in a few pages of Crichton, but that's really it. Whereas you come away from, from Bob's book going... Wow, they were they were shunted out of the major houses for years. Yeah, that that period is a little. I, you get the feeling Crichton doesn't want to depict that first British tour as quite the embarrassment that it was. Um, he he turns that around into a triumph very quickly and easily. And then when they come back, he makes their treatment by Albie a little softer than it was. And doesn't he imply that that their act? sort of did better on the on the lesser circuits because it was less familiar there he sort of plays it down that way doesn't he yeah a little of that he he says they were too fast for the british yes bader basically says other than pantages they went years and years and years without being able to play class a theaters yeah at the also at the beginning of minnie's management of the team like it was a major come down from when they were the Nightingales working under Ned Wayburn, and he was getting Groucho and Gummo um, pretty good, serious bookings. And it was when Minnie took over the act that they suddenly were, you know, playing those mosquito-infested <laughs> theaters, and, you know, all those tales. The refugees from Hiroshima. What a paragraph. It, it, it mentions concentration camps and Hiroshima. <laughs> yes, two, two off-color jokes in one paragraph, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, we all caught that, didn't we? Yes. <laughs> now we're going to get into this ventriloquist dummy thing or not? We- oh. <laughs> well, just in right. Okay. <laughs> Something I wanted to raise, just in general. I mean, obviously, as we as we've now very definitely said, you know, this is a book that is very much uh, about establishing the mythology. It's it's a book where where they've decided. You know, this is our chance to to give history the the version of the Marx Brothers story that that we want. So obviously, it's yeah. full of it's full of funny stories, yeah. and it's full of funny stories that are that are probably elaborated upon, if not if not mm-hmm. uh, created out of nothing. But one of the ones that interests me most is this story, which must have some basis, in fact, because it's, I would think it's impossible to invent. And it, they stick to it. He's still coming out with it in, in the scrapbook about Gummo going into an act where he pretends to be a ventriloquist doll. Now, I can, I can believe, I could easily believe a child being made up to look like a doll, you know, for, for whatever reason. But, but that's not the claim. The claim is that, that Uncle Heine just sort of kind of goes into his shed and knocks up this this kind of uh egyptian sarcophagus style casing 
in which Gummo is inserted, uh, uh, you know, somehow <laughs> able to to breathe and 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 uh, you know and, and sweat freely. Uh, you know, it, it it just seems you know if he if he was able to do that, to my mind, he's got an act. He's got mm-hmm. an act there. He doesn't he doesn't need to he doesn't need to, <laughs> to pull off any kind of subterfuge. You know, it's not a deception. He's got a brilliant act. This thing that looks like a ventriloquist doll but isn't. And the idea is that he just uses it to pull off this kind of mediocre scam. I just, it just seems ludicrous to me. Does it, does it not to everyone else? It's gummo padding. And then when yes. it falls apart because of the, uh, the needle into the wrong leg and he's running around the stage. Exactly. Yeah. It's such a. <laughs> they act like that, that ruined the, the act. When I would, if I was hmm. in the audience, I would have thought that would have been the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. I exactly. Had my feet applauding. Yeah. So you're, you're saying it's bullshit. Well, I, it, it's either bullshit or. He just pretended to be a doll. You know, they put a bit of makeup on his face, draw a few, drew a few lines on, you know, and he pretended to be a doll. Or they have this great act where you pretend to be, you know, it's, that's, the, that's the joke. Is it somebody pretending to be a doll? It just seems like the most elaborate, you know, uh, and he, oh, he just he went off and made this thing with a papier-mâché head. Gummo's working mm. it from inside or something, you know. I mean, how, how, just even that, you know, how can he, how can he be working a mouth that's over his mouth? I mean, wh- <laughs> where are the strings? I, now, now I'm, I'm getting everything mixed up. I can't remember where, where, where is he claiming this falls in the timeline? Why is Gummo available as a solo? What's happening? Oh, early on before the Marx Brothers, like before the Nightingale? I think even, yeah. I, I thought it was 1973, just after an evening with Groucho. <laughs> 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 It must be that, that that ventriloquism story, you know, maybe it's based on the barest seed of something that really happened. Mm, I think was, so, yeah. You know, yeah. Elaborately embellished. Uh, maybe, maybe it was one of those showbiz stories that people pass along. I once saw an act where yeah. there was a yeah. fake ventriloquist doll, and then they needed more gummo pages. Exactly. So I think, gave it to I think, him. I think Scott is exactly right. I think, I think um, they needed a fifth of the book to be to be gummo and the, and what is there with gummo he went to, he went in the army we've done that he sold paraffin boxes we've done that <laughs> we need something else and i and i'm sure i i'm sure they conjured that story up and and he and that was his good story so when he got interviewed by an overly he told it again you know that was his story that was his his anecdote <laughs> it just seems like the most ridiculous subterfuge well whatever they they're writing a book and books are are made to be mm. sold, and they knew a fifth of their buyers are Gummo Marx fans. <laughs> exactly. <yes. laughs> so I'm going to ask this. Uh, Janie, what's her name? Janie O'Brien? Is that her name? Uh, Janie? O'Reilly. O'Reilly. I'm sorry. Mm. Janie O'Reilly. Now, she toured with them for quite a while, She, according to this book. There, there's no story about her being with any, any of the uh, brothers. I meant to check Bader on that. I have. I didn't have a chance. I. I. I know Bader does get to more, more truth about her and some of the other minor players in the early days. But I, yeah, I know there. 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 There must be something missing there, don't you think? Well, overall, in the book, there's a conspicuous absence of girlfriends, wives, and children. Even when we get into the later years, the weirdest one is that Ruth does not get introduced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just suddenly you turn a page and Groucho has a wife. I mean, they don't, they don't even give her. They don't give her the courtesy of. And then Groucho met a woman named Ruth. 
There are things in the book that where there's a little glimmer of something that where we know the story. Um, like I thought it was strange that Herman Timberg, he's only mentioned once and it's in the quote of the billing for on the mezzanine Herman Timberg presents. Um, and you're like, Oh man, well there, there's 30 pages. You didn't write, you know? <laughs> and yeah, the Groucho Ruth Zeppo love triangle didn't want to go there. No. And there, there are no whorehouses in this book. No, no whorehouses. There are, there no, are uh, saloons. Uh, uh, yes. Chico, Chico plays in saloons and sometimes after a show the boys will go unwind in a saloon <laughs> yeah and Chico's not really depicted as a womanizer no. in this book he's just depicted as a very charming man <laughs> who could get chorus girls on the spot yeah yeah. and the uh, the, the Lori trio uh, story gets better in the later years yeah. <laughs> it, well, there's really not much there in this book you need you need Groucho to really tell the story correctly. One interesting thing I came across while reading this is oftentimes I had to remind myself that this was written in 1950 because he would say, to this day, Groucho maintains, or Groucho would mm. still be in Philadelphia if it wasn't for you know somebody coming to get him. Yeah, there's many reminders of that sprinkled throughout the text, which is interesting. And you're also kind of aware of Groucho's um, outsized celebrity at the time. Um, yes. You know, Groucho is is treated very much as a current superstar in a way that the others aren't. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I had no idea that Zeppo hated chickens so much. Who would have thought? Again, I, I don't, I don't know if it's selling the mythology or if it's just stupidity. But one sentence I marked was um, was their success at Paramount was solid without being sensational. And I'm thinking. Hmm. Yeah. Wasn't Coconuts one of the biggest hits of all time? I was like, why is he? Yeah, didn't, didn't they end up on the cover of Time magazine? It's like, why, yeah. why, is, why is he typing this? Because I think by that point, at least Groucho was trying to push the Thalberg to night at the opera. It's Groucho, yeah. Groucho is setting up Thalberg. So, was, uh, I mean, okay. So, are we saying in 1950, Groucho already believed that Night at the Opera was the greatest movie? I think so. I, and, I would think, I think so. Think yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as yeah. as late as his as late as his Playboy interview, he refers to the Paramount films as those five turkeys. <laughs> um, he 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 absolutely <laughs> thought that uh, that Thalberg had had uh, made something of them that just wasn't there before. Yeah. And he and Harpo both uh, perpetuate that in their books. The idea that the entire film career up to 1935 was a series of misfires. And again, it speaks of a time when you don't uh, see these films over and over again, as we're so lucky to be able to do. Uh, we are the, we know, we really are the first generation uh, that that can can say, "I'm going to watch Coconuts tonight" and put the thing on. I don't have box office mojo in front of me, but I mean, weren't the first four Paramounts all giant, giant hits? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think we're really talking about pop popularity, but as far as Groucho thinking, though, that they made a, a good film. No, I'm just trying you know? to figure out why, yeah. why Crichton would be trying to uh, trying to say that the Paramount films didn't really work. I'd be willing to bet that's the impression he got from the Marx Brothers. Yeah, yeah. Groucho is, is very, very fond of Thalberg, isn't he? It's obvious. You see it right through in the Cavett interviews and so on. You know, he, he, he loves that story of Thalberg uh, taking them to a, to a new level. I think it was flattering for them to consider their most prestigious films to also be their best. Mm-hmm. I want to believe the legend, and and I'll pick a fight with anybody on this podcast that they did 
they did go nude and roast potatoes on the floor of his office. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe it completely. Let's have this out once and for all. Men, how old happened. were they then? Hang on, Groucho was, what was he, 45? 45. Groucho was 45. 45. The other guys were older. 47, they, 48. They were about to land the most important movie deal of their lives. And they thought, I know, let's do something utterly moronic because maybe in 30 years time there's going to be this mythology about us and it's going to look great it's going to look terrible now trust me it's going to look awful now but in i believe every every word of it the only part i trip over is where did they get the potatoes exactly yes the mickeys i love the quote from the from the secretary in charlotte chandler where she says, you know, oh, the, I think they did something once about trying to get some smoke under the door, but but it didn't work because the doors were insulated. And I'm sure if they'd done anything funny, I'd have remembered it. I love that quote because it just pulls the rug <laughs> underneath all that stuff. As you point out too, Matthew, it's a little bit like what happens in the night of it the It is, opera. isn't it? Yes, in... very much. Yeah. In um, what's his name's office? Sigrid- Gottlieb. Gottlieb. Office. Yes. Um, but I, I, but I do think that's the beginning of the tradition. Now, of course, whenever you have a meeting with an important producer, you you strip down for it. Of course, yeah. <laughs> it's mandatory. Yes, you think nothing of it now, but at the time, yeah. Did you and Larry ever try that, Scott? Larry and I've been stripping down since 1986. <laughs> <laughs> that's where the title "Man on the Moon" comes from, right? <laughs> the title screwed. <laughs> Hey, I read I read Leonard Maltin's review of that. Yeah, it's a little it's a little mean. And considering I, I've been friends with Leonard since the eighties, I was going to say, you know, I remember somebody 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 in the Facebook group made a, a mild dig about Leonard Maltin, and you leapt to his defense. And I thought, now there is a nice guy. If if the man that wrote that review of Screwed, if he's sticking up for him, he, this is a fair man. I think it's funny. I don't care what Leonard says. <laughs> well, let's let's come to the uh, to the the subject then of of biopics. As as you mentioned earlier, Scott, it is my feeling that that part of the reason why this book was written was so as to create a narrative uh, that that could then be used for the, for their for their uh, life story on film, which unfortunately, as we know. Um, never did happen the first inkling of it that i've been able to find was back in 1947 uh before love happy but still with with lester cowan uh supposedly at the helm and it was going to be called mother of the two a day and they bought the screen rights to walcott's article about uh, oh, wow. about mini and it, that was that was the uh, what what they it was supposedly being based on they they for some reason they they bought the screen rights to a to a newspaper article which seems very strange to me um but that's what they did and then they bought the rights to an obituary basically so yes that's right they they used they bought that as a screen treatment and there's a you, reference to that in and, and, and these days in Hollywood we call that ip intellectual property you can turn anything into a movie that's right. Uh, yeah, a, a Lego, an, an Obit. <laughs> it's a Wonderful Life was a greeting card, wasn't it? It was. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Was it really? Yes. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Look it up. 
So this is 1947. It's right after Night in Casablanca, but before Love Happy. And then um, the next we hear of it, I think, or we hear of it obviously some more, but but after a little layoff, we hear of it again in 1956 in the Daily Reporter on the February of uh, on uh, February the seventh. Uh, it's apparently now and in the writing stage at MGM. So right through the 50s, um, there is this concerted effort to make a biopic. So it seems to me, um, if not um, relevant, then extremely coincidental that all five of them got together at the same time in the same place. I was looking up news clippings for uh, about the book the other day, and early 1950, before the book even comes out, Crichton is saying that he hopes to uh, have it turned into a screenplay at some point. Yeah. So I think what they're very much doing is creating their story, and they're telling it to this showbiz journalist, Carl Crichton, so that they have, um, you know, the, the, the makings of a screenplay. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that that is the, the essential purpose of it. Because they were very serious about it. I mean, if you look at when you look through the trades, you know, I mean, every couple of years, Chico pops up saying we're going to do something. We're going to do this. Harpo pops up saying I'm going to do a film just me set in France where I play a mime artist or, you know, whatever. But but this is the one that all of them were really uh, behind. Even Gummo, you know, there are reports of Gummo saying, yep, we're going to do this. We're going to make the story of the Marx Brothers. Lester Cowan's going to produce it. We're going to be in the wraparound story, doing a brand new comedy routine, and then there's going to be actors playing us in, in the main thing. They were very, very keen for this to happen. And mm-hmm. so it seems to me that the, 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 at least in part, the purpose of this book was to, was to provide a treatment for that. The Jolson story had been such a huge hit just a few years previously. Yes. And it had offered this opportunity for Al Jolson not only to have his work back in the mainstream attention again, but, um, but he appeared in the movie briefly and he did his own vocals. And so it was also a, a performance opportunity for a star of the Marxist generation. I, I'm sure that was the model. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I don't know. I never saw the Jolson story. How is it? It's okay. I mean, like a lot of other things about Al Jolson, <laughs> parts of it have aged better than others. They actually made a sequel, a sequel, a sequel to a biopic. Not too often you see that. Mm. Yeah, J- Jolson mm. sings again. But biopics were in, you know, I mean, generally there were there were a lot of them about in the fifties. You know, there was the the Ke- Buster Keaton had one, didn't he? And uh, yeah. Yeah. Faces and uh, Love Me or Leave Me. You know, it was it was a uh, it was um, a time. It wasn't a nostalgia boom like the nineteen seventies had a nostalgia boom, but it was the first inkling of a nostalgia boom. And a lot of the old stars were kind of reasserting their place in history that way, weren't they? Yeah, I I, I mean. To jump ahead, and then I'll jump back. I mean, when Larry and I got around to writing our script, it just baffled us that it seemed like everybody but the Marxes had had their bio. Even Kalmar mm. and Ruby. Even Kalmar and Ruby. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and, and maybe part of it was just trying to wrangle f- five different people. Yes, I mean they're they're so uh, they're such unique. Uh, individuals that it, I would imagine it would be much harder. I mean, it, it, I, I doubt it bothered anyone watching Man of a Thousand Faces that, that James Cagney looked nothing like Lon Chaney. I mean, that wasn't a problem. But but it would be very difficult, I think, to accept anyone being Groucho or Harpo who wasn't exactly like them because they were much more distinct in that in that way. So I imagine they were very, very, 
very hard to cast. I mean, we know we found that funny story about uh, Marty Allen and whatever his partner was called. Yeah, Steve Steve Rossi. No, wait a minute, wait, wait. We need we need, we need to correct this. It was Marty Allen's previous partner. He had a he had a partner oh. before Steve Rossi, who, uh. was, who who went in with them, and they were going. Marty Allen was going to be Harpo. I, I think his partner was going to be Gummo. I believe. I, I barely know who these yeah. people are. You, 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 you've fallen so far into the wormhole that even I don't know who <laughs> who preceded Steve Rossi. <laughs> we actually wrote Marty. We tried contacting Marty Allen while he was still with us. We did, the, yes. Yeah, we did. No, no response. Oh, uh, well, was there was there any any ac- activity after this book came out? Wasn't that Lester Cohen again? Yeah, it was Lester. Ca- yeah, but it it never happened. I mean, I presume. Part of the problem was just Lester Cowan's complete uh, unreliability. I mean, if you've read the the Love Happy chapter in in my book, and uh, you'll you'll get a yes. a clearer sense even than from from Harpo speaks about what a a strange character Lester Cowan was, and how everyone involved with him ended up ripping their hair out uh, trying to to um, to keep track of his. Uh, you know his his progress so so i think it was obvious that 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 project was was not gonna happen i mean it's amazing that love happy happened i will admit that i i never bothered to get myself to the academy library which is all of 15 minutes from my house and to see if there is a <laughs> if there actually is a script from that time period i have no idea oh while it's, you're there look up find out the manicures for us please <laughs> oh, now that I got you on the line, yeah, we need, we need to get this done right away. 2019, this is supposed to be the year. We're running out of time. Come on. <laughs> I mean, no, knowing that Lester Cowan was a hustler, I would assume he did hire somebody to write a script or a treatment. Yes, I mean that's the thing with Lester Cowan is is he wanted the Marx Brothers, so that that's why Harpo was so cross with him. I think that's the that's the missing key to to Harpo's attitude towards him with Love Happy is that from the very first, all he wanted was a Marx Brothers film. He didn't want a Harpo film. He got mm-hmm. Chico in uh, first, which, which, uh, you know, people don't, don't, don't realize, um, and used that to kind of leave a Harpo in and then pretended he needed Groucher. He was only really interested in the three of them. And the big project, that he wanted was was to do this biopic and i i I just i think they were just they just realized that he wasn't somebody that that they wanted to be associated with i mean he was just a he he seems i mean maybe i'm being unfair i mean obviously i don't know you know i wasn't there but he seems to be of of all the people in their story you know the the most frivolously fly-by-night person i mean i mean just knowing how how showbiz works he he would have optioned. I'm assuming he would have optioned the book. He would have had an 18 month option, and then he could have re up the option. But at some point, within a, a within three years of the publication of the book, he wouldn't have had the rights to the book anymore if the boys didn't want him to have the rights. Mm-hmm. So at yes, some point, yeah. they must have by the mid 50s. They must have just said, "Oh, forget it." And Groucho's the biggest star in the world again, and he doesn't care. He doesn't need the movie. Yes, that's right. I mean, 56 is the last I've found any reference to it until about 1965. 
five, I think, when it comes up again as a separate project. And that I think Which allows in the Minis Boys, I think eventually. Vaguely, but, yes. It yeah. kind yeah. of half inspires that. But that one definitely went to a script because Joe Adamson's read it. It inv- it starts according to Joe, it starts with Groucho and Melinda. Um Uh oh. So uh, uh, you know, as themselves, <laughs> and then flashes back in, from, from there. Uh, Joe has read that script. That's a complete script, and he said it was basically, you know, much to do about nothing. Who who wrote it? Um, good question. I I can't remember. Um, yeah, it's just the writer. It doesn't matter. But, but <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it's the director that matters. For goodness' <laughs> sake, God. <laughs> Don't these write themselves? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so so yes, there was a there was a big gap. But then it does it does come back with a vengeance. And uh, well, let me just let me just let me just read from my own book here. Uh, so um, Sheila Graham told her readers in November of 1956. That the Marx Brothers biopic idea first mooted around the time of Love Happy was again a going concern. This time it was to be called Mini, with Groucho, Harpo, Chico and Zeppo all appearing. Harold Hefferman suggested the following March that Groucho, Chico, Harpo and Gummo were set to appear of themselves and that Zeppo might possibly join them. As before, <laughs> a search as before, a search so far unsuccessful was underway for youthful lookalikes to pay them in the main section of the film. Groucho's suggestion that they cast four beautiful girls and let me be the director was apparently not acted upon. Sol Siegel was to be the producer, and a script now called Minnie's Boys, but unconnected to the later stage play, was duly completed, only to be followed by the usual sound of doors firmly shutting. Joe Adamson read the script a decade later and found little to get upset about. Their lives were seen in flashback, and Groucho, at least, was seen in the present day, recollecting stuff and discussing it with his daughter, Melinda. I didn't like it. So that was the 1956 version. It would have been wonderful to have Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and Gummo as themselves, and have somebody else play Zeppo. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been a nice slap in the face. (laughs) Yeah, just just have Van Johnson as Zeppo. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or Alan Jones. <laughs> yes. Zeppo was aboard. He was part of the project for a few days. And then he said, you know what? I'm quitting. I'm quitting the act. <laughs> Hang on. He said, I'll tell you what he said. I made a note of this from, uh, from he said, uh, this sounds like horse shit. Which is the <laughs> the line from Scott's script where uh, he's first the, the, the first put the proposition to him that he should join the act. <laughs> yeah, my, my favorite line in the whole script. This sounds like horse shit. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, let me just uh, f- fill you in on exactly what we're talking about here. Um, in addition to uh, the the uh, the biopics that you you know and love that Scott and Larry. Karazuski yes. uh, wrote, there is also um, a Marx Brothers biopic script. Um, so, so fill us in a little bit about that and uh, how, you, how you came to write it and, and what, uh, how it fared. Oh, it's a heartbreaker. Um, it's something we always talked about because we both love the Marxes and I was especially obsessed, but it was almost like too hitting too close to home. Like I, I didn't, I, I, I wasn't writing movies about people that I was personally obsessed with. 
And then a, a producer came to us. We never heard of him. And he came to us and he, he says, I've got the rights to the Marx Brothers tied up with a bow. That's the quote. This is late 90s. And we go, tied up with a bow, huh? He says, no one's ever had all the rights before. And we go, huh, okay. Um, I, I just, I still felt like I wanted to put a little bit of distance between it. And I said, I will produce it. I won't write it. He says, come on, you got to write. Don't you love them? I go, yeah, I do love them. It just, I don't know. It feels like writing a movie about my own family or something. And so we just kind of held him at bay for a couple of years. And we met with other writers. And, and then after we wrote Man on the Moon, uh, you know, which was about a comedian. Um, and we were working a lot with Jersey Films, which was Danny DeVito, Stacey Sharon, Michael, Michael Schamberg's company. We started thinking again about the Marx Project, and we were sort of like the the favorites at Universal for five minutes. And uh, I knew that you know most of our story, if we showed stuff in the movies or recreate stuff in the movies, would involve the five Paramount titles, and those were based at Universal, as we all know. And so it seemed like hmm, maybe it's meant to be. So we went back to him, and then we went uh, and we pitched it to Danny. Who was a who was a big Marx fan, and Danny was screaming with laughter, and he says, "This is this will be so much fun. Let's let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it." And so we we took it into Universal, <laughs> and we got all excited, and we made the deal, and everyone was giddy, uh, and then we started working, and then it turned out that the rights really weren't tied up with a bow. It turned out they had the rights to Groucho. And that, um, as we all know, there has there have been different frictions over the year with the estates, and that mm. Har- Harpo and Chico hadn't been called up. They they didn't know about this, and um, so there was a lot of and certainly nobody called up Zeppo and Gummo. <laughs> so uh, there was a lot of backstage fighting with the lawyers, um, and eventually, eventually that got worked out, and then we embarked on this massive. Project which we were doing for love, um, and it meant it gave us an excuse to reread every single book. Um, this was one of the only projects we've done that really was not about interviewing people, because there are so many books about the Marxes. It just sort of felt a little silly to go track down people. Um, out of courtesy, uh, we spent time with Arthur. Um, and, and now, just in a complete coincidence, I'm friends with, with Andy, Arthur's son. We spent time with Arthur um, just to be greedy and to use the opportunity. We drove out to Palm Springs and we hung out with Bill Marks and with Susan, who was still around. And I felt I felt uh, very privileged that I was spending time with a first-generation Marks relative, and she was the last one left. And that was and that was really nice. And and Susan and Bill were really gracious with us, and I, I still talk. I still actually talked to Bill about a month ago, uh, um, so that was nice. But because of all the books and whatever, Bill's written books, Arthur's written books, everyone, everyone's written books. It's sort of like people have run out of stories to tell. If if they were going to write the stories, if they were going to tell the stories, they would have put them in their books already. So it was really just an opportunity to reread Adamson for the thousandth time and. Um, Oh my god, I can't even remember his name now. Help me out, guys. Camphor. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Stephen Camphor. Uh Universal optioned that book to take it off the market because they thought it would be a com- 
<laughs> like like the, it was going to be like a bidding war in a competitive situation. Like three studios are going to be fighting over who gets to make a Marx Brothers movie, you know, in, in 2000, which is just absurd. So we embarked on, on years of work. Um, it took us at least a year to produce the first draft, which I just found two nights ago, and it was 281 pages long which is madness for those of you out there who don't follow these things. It's a, when you write a screenplay, it's a minute a page, uh, give or take. So that would be 281 minute long movie. That's what we want. <laughs> yeah, everyone's salivating like, Oh boy. Yay. That's a five hour movie. <laughs> Just what we want. But when you do all that work, then you have to cut, you got to cut, you know, a lot of it out. Um, unfortunately, Universal got overconfident with Man on the Moon. And they moved it to Christmas Day, and we were pleading with them not to. We we're saying it's not a Christmas Day movie. Man on the Moon fucks with the audience's head. It's in, it's meant to be upsetting. It's meant to annoy you the way Andy annoyed you. It's not meant to satisfy. It's meant to intrigue. And Christmas Day movies are grandma, the kids, everyone gets in the station wagon, and you go on a family outing and you see a movie. And this is not this is the opposite of a feel good film. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, it's Jim Carrey in a comedy. We're like, guys, this is, <laughs> it's Jim Carrey. This ain't, it's, it's kind of funny, but this is not grandma and the kids. Anyway, it opened on Christmas day and it was a disaster. And so suddenly man on the moon had lost, had lost money for universal. And we're the guys who were halfway through writing another comedian biopic for the same studio. So we did so much work and we, I mean, we really enjoyed focusing it. Um, I mean, to be positive, I mean, we kind of came up with two themes for the movie and all of our biopics are not just about the person. All our biopics have very strong themes and we couldn't really decide on the theme. So it had two. one theme was the Marx Brothers were the first punk rockers. And so we, we ran with that thesis a lot in terms of the disrespect for us. And it, a part of it is selling, selling the legend, but the disrespect for authority, the disrespect for breaking the fourth wall, the disrespect for the proscenium, mm -hmm. the disrespect for traditional storytelling, um, the rough, the rough housing, the talking back to the managers. Oh, I'm finding you five dollars. That kind of stuff, and how they carry this forward into the vaudeville, into Broadway, into the movies. And we thought that was kind of cool, and that made them different. That that ain't Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy. Ain't ain't breaking the fourth wall. They 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 they're not they're not tearing down the rules of of art. The, the Marxists were. Um, the other big idea was what is it like to be a professional brother, which we thought was really interesting. How you're trapped with your siblings every minute of your life, and it's good and it's bad. And, 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 you know, and, 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 and certainly, it, it, and, and we got to deal with it in the story at certain points when Gummo wants to leave, when Zeppa wants to leave, when it's like, well, what does it mean? Uh, you know, are you still family? And, and, and clearly the brothers all remained close their entire lives because they, I mean, that, which is really a tribute to the five guys. Um, so those, those are the two ideas which we tried to weave through the script and we really tried to capture their voices uh, I mean, S S Susan and, and Bill were 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 big fans of the, of the script, which I which I appreciated. And Bill, I actually rewrote it a couple months ago and called me up, and, it, and he he thought it really nailed the guys and, and how they were and how they when they were hanging out together, and that that was kind of the goal 
Um, I'd say our, I'd say our relationship with Arthur in this script uh, was a little mixed because Arthur probably looked at us and said, "Well, how come I'm not writing this script? I'm a screenwriter too," which which leads me to a a funny uh, throwaway story that we uh, we spent an afternoon with Irving Brecker. Which again, what wasn't really because he was going to tell us anything important because our movie stopped in 1935. Um, but we wanted hell. We're going to go meet Irving Brecker, who wrote two Marx Brothers movies, and hang out with him. And he knew, and so we set up the meeting, and we brought the tape recorder, and we turned on the tape, and then we, and I said, okay, so tell me how you met Groucho. And He says, well, we can stop right there. I go, what do you mean? He says, I'll talk to you about anything but the Marx Brothers. I go, huh? He says, you want to talk about me? Maybe in St. Louis? No. You, you want to talk about Bobby Birdie? It's like, Irv, what are you doing? He says, you know, I'm a fucking screenwriter too. I go, I know you are. He says, so how come you're not paying me for this? I go, well, we got hired. <laughs> we, we, we thought you were just going to tell some story. He says, I get paid to do Marx Brothers material. I go, I'm not asking you to write jokes, Irv. I'm just asking. It's like, you've, you've given these interviews a billion times. But he wouldn't give them to us. It was so perverse. I mean, I guess in the marks of it all, it was it's it, it was appropriate that he was being perverse. And so we sat there for three hours talking about anything except the Marx Brothers. It was so ridiculous. <laughs> I love how you have in the script when uh, Groucho and Harpo are telling Chico that they're going to receive his salary for the first MGM films. Um and Groucho says, you know, uh, otherwise you're just going to come back and work, make us do some freaking circus picture. <laughs> yes. You'll, make, you'll come back in five years and make us do a circus yeah, picture. Yeah, that's yes. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we, we finished, we finished, the, I mean, we worked on the script for years. We finally finished it early 2000s. A, a couple major stars did attach themselves. I'm not going to name names, but we did have Groucho's attached. And then the studio said, well, who's Harpo? Who's Chico? And we could, we could never line up the combination enough of them to make them confident. It was a really expensive movie. Uh, the movie has a billion locations because they're always on trains. They're always in a new theater. They're always in a new city. And that stuff costs money. Um, I mean, most, you know, biopics about actors or, or, or about theater, you know, you, you can park the production in one or two theaters. This, this movie vaudeville broadway uh story uh hollywood they're, they're just constantly running around i mean we tried to simplify it where we could you have a scene where you actually recreate swain's rats and cats on screen i mean just the cgi <laughs> bill for that well and and we we didn't really have cgi back then so you would have had a... the animatronic bill <laughs> yes yeah, the, yeah, the puppeteers doing it. Um, we we did have one. Uh, I mean, we we had a lot of guys banging on our door when the script got out, and uh, a young British comedian who wasn't very well known in this country named Sasha Baron Cohen came to our office. Mm-hmm. He did a Groucho that was just perfection. A six and a half foot Groucho. Yeah. No, but you, but but if you if you if you look at his face, his, his facial structure. I mean, and then you think of Groucho out of makeup at that age. Oh yeah, he absolutely. was yeah perfect, and he had he had the voice, he had the he had the walk. I mean, it was we were blown away, and we mentioned him to to the studio, and they said, "Who is this? Who is he?" We said, "Well, he's got this this Ali G thing in England." And they're like, "Well, we're not going to spend fifty million dollars to make that." <laughs> <laughs> 
because we don't even know who the hell this wow. guy is. So that was ironic. Um, but basic, basically, the, 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 the script had a lot of love uh, from everyone who read it around town, but nobody was going to make it because it was really expensive. And that's kind of the end of that story. Every every few years, someone calls up, says whatever happened in that script. I go, whatever. It's sitting in a vault at Universal. I mean, it kind of would require all all three guys, I think, to be names at this point. I mean, we always thought it'd be better with no names. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, sometimes people say to us, well, "Why don't guys just turn into a mini series and you certainly have the material and do a six hour version?" I mean, I, I want to believe that someday we can get it made because I, I do. I, I am very proud of it, and I think it really captures them and would sort of show them off to a new generation. I'm just, I'm just not sure who who the buyer is right now who's going to pay to make that story. Well, do you think the moderate success of Stan and Ali might open some doors for you? Um, no. I mean, that, that, whatever. That's a cheap movie. The movie just takes place in a, in a couple old music halls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that struck me when I was reading the script, I was reading, I read it again today. I read it um, a couple of months ago, but I read it again this morning. And I think what what comes across very, very clearly is uh, is a real um, affection for them. And in particular, it's it sort of as we've been talking about with Crichton, it, it sort of builds up the the legends about them, but it does it in a way that kind of winks at people who who know those stories already it kind of tips them off in in a way that i think is is very very refreshing you know the 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 idea of uh, groucho saying maybe i'll walk like that looking at an old man uh, with a with, with a stoop <laughs> and uh, you know and, and harpo hearing the the uh, the taxi horn honking um it 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 just has that flavor of not um you know absolute factual reportage uh, and not just you know wild fancy, but but it, it's sort of it, it's pitched at at the people who would enjoy it most. It's mm-hmm. one of the few kind of biopic scripts that I can think of that, that is absolutely aimed at the people who it should be aimed at. Well, thanks. I, I mean, I mean, it was really important just to to sort of feel like what what were these what was it like for the guys when they were just sit, sitting around chatting. And, and and when they've been like you know on planes, trains, and automobiles, you know, for the last forty years, they've been together every minute of their lives. So, what is it? What is it like being one of these guys? Mm-hmm. For me, one of the things I I like so much about what you did with Man on the Moon and and Edward is um, telling the story of an artist in that artist's style. Uh-huh. Um, you know, a man on the moon is very much the film Andy Kaufman might've made about himself. And, and this is uh, a, a Marx brothers style telling of the Marx yes. brothers story. And so that's all the excuse you need for, you know, leaning a little bit on the mythology. Cause we know exactly how they would have told their story. It's, it's in Crichton's book as well as their books. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and, and so the idea that, uh, if the Marx brothers were presenting their story, uh, they wouldn't have been slaves to the facts. They would have been as entertaining as possible. And, you know, it, this clearly would be a phenomenally entertaining movie if it were made. So you have things like them fleeing from the rent collector in the style yeah. of them fleeing from from Henderson the detective. You know, it's 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 mm. yeah. Yeah, I, I hadn't really realized how, how much the the running through the rooms, slamming the doors, was a recurring motif until we watched all thirteen movies in a row. Mm-hmm. 
prepping to write mm. the script and then sort of realized that we could take that opening scene with the rent collector and kind of make it make it the motif of the whole movie. Yes. Yeah, I, I got a lot of pleasure out of sort of just trying to work as much Marx Brothers style material into their into their lives with a bit of a wink. And before we get inundated with uh, requests from our listeners uh, where they could find the script, huh? Why don't we? Why don't we? Why don't we head that off at the pass? They can't. I'm not allowed to post it online. So leave us alone. There you go. <laughs> uh, when we were writing the script, I think we took the the most pleasure, believe it or not, in writing Zeppo, because mm-hmm. because we found Zeppo really interesting, and then when people asked us how the project was going, we said, "Well, believe it or not, Zeppo might be the best character." Because we sort of found the the frustration of being fated to be Zeppo Marx really like this existential crisis, mm-hmm. and he and he ends up getting a lot of really interesting scenes just about with that he is completely self aware of his fate in life, <laughs> and there's there's no there's no joke there and 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 you know and then when he get, you know, when he gets to go on the one the one night because Groucho has appendicitis and then. Groucho cuts that one off. Yeah. And when he finally decides to leave the act, we sort of made it into a, a big deal. Um, and then, and then of course we just had the boys immediately go, Oh, oh wait, it's gummo available. It's just like, <laughs> they, don't, they don't give a shit. They'll just <laughs> swap them out. He does have the most extraordinary press. I mean, Bob in particular has, has made this point that there is, there is virtually nobody in the history of movies for whom the in um you know in in showbiz reportage that has this stick of being rubbish being no good at their job <laughs> it's it's constant and i mean i'm looking at my copy of Crichton here and on the back of my dust jacket i don't know if the american one is the same as the british one but it's got a, a blurb about carl Crichton. he was the associate editor of colliers he's written dozens of profiles of great names entertainment blah 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 uh, he's so intimate that he's commonly regarded as the six marks brother, and with the exception of Zeppo, the worst actor. That's on the hmm. back of the book. <laughs> oh my god! Wow. <laughs> and unlike uh, uh, Crichton's book, you actually got the date of uh, Zeppo's departure from the from the act, right? Uh, because, uh, oh, oh the thank book, you. The book ha- the book has uh, Zeppo in the meeting with Thalberg. Uh, th- thanks for that uh, that that lavish compliment. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and we also got it right that they they shot animal crackers in in New York. Yeah, you win on yes. points. Yes, you did your homework. How he made that mistake, I'll never know. <laughs> when when we write these scripts, you know, we we do have to come up with a three act structure, beginning, middle, and end, and we and we try and we always try to go out on a high point, uh, some sort of emotional point where the audience can feel good about having watched the movie and so we, we felt night the opera being a hit is is the high point and so uh working backwards that meant uh the failure of duck soup and and the possible breaking up of the act became the end of the second act so so the, the the movie the movie covers about 20 years and it starts with them as young teenage thugs uh, in New York, and 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 Mama gets gets them into showbiz, and then they end up coming out to Hollywood, uh, and they have a bunch of bad marriages, 
and then the act breaks up after duck soup and there's a sense of well do we need to do we need to go on we we will always be brothers but do we still need to be an act and Groucho's got money Harpo's got money and as we all know Chico doesn't have money and and Zeppo even though Zeppo didn't actually contribute anything to the act, it, it just ha- has a symbolic power that one of the four is saying, I'm done. Uh, and and so we, we, we then made MGM sort of the, the, the feel-good third act where they get to make a great movie, and then they also get to go back on the road again. And that, that felt to us very sentimental in a nice way, that they get to go back to being kids again. Uh, which is performing in front of live people. It's, a, it's such a relief to come across a, a a biopic that that ends with them on a high, rather than starts yeah. with them on a high and then and then goes it goes into their decline, which seems to be the the default with with all biopics. They always want to start when they're up and then and then watch them droop and it's so boring to me and this is uh, i was so delighted that this one you know starts uh, starts with them at the beginning and ends with them on a high i mean it why not yeah that's what you were trying to do because i i always thought the high was the fact that zeppo was gone i thought that was <laughs> <laughs> well I, I mean putting ourselves in their heads the, the idea of guys who are pushing 50 going back to five a day mm-hmm. must have been like, holy shit, what are we doing? Why is this happening again? <laughs> but I, on the other sense, there must have been a sense of being able to recapture your youth. And it probably was a little magical. Yeah, and it lets you close on Minnie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Minnie died on after the first night of You Bet Your Life, I think. I <laughs> she, just, she, she was able to see that triumph and then uh, she she passed away. <laughs> No, I think she died after she saw Skidoo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who didn't? <laughs> she was slumped over in the theater. <laughs> um, one other thing I, I want before we uh, before we wrap up, um, you, you more recently, um, could you tell us the story about your uh, Harpo find, your your Harpo success? Oh yeah. My Harpo find, um, 2018 was a, it was a very bad year for me in that my mom got sick and then my mom passed away and my, and my dad got very ill and I was, I was kind of in charge of all this and I, it, I was just really feeling very down in the dumps and, um, as you guys know, I have only gotten on Facebook for a little over a year. And I, I kind of fell into this Marx Brothers site, and I was just on it every night. My wife would say, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and it's, I, I'm just like, like rereading, rereading comments. It's like, what am I? Uh, but it was this like, guy Jay Hopkins. What's the deal? Yeah, yeah, I don't know who he is, but he, he keeps posting the same picture of Arthur Marx. I don't know why. <laughs> Arthur at the tennis club. It's like, yeah, I've been to that tennis club with Arthur, but I don't have that picture. I don't know who cares. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I was just like falling into, and I was, it's like I was having my second childhood. I was like falling into this Marx Brothers world as a way of escaping from all this family nightmare that I was dealing with. And, and the, all the Marx Brothers world was bringing me a lot of joy. And then, I don't know, somebody posted that, that one still from 
from the Ford Motor film, which is Harpo's last movie. The, the film was, uh, um, uh, well, actually, I'll do, I'll, do a, I'll do a plug for a documentary that came out recently about this world called Bathtubs Over Broadway, which is so much fun. And I got to meet the the, the, the gang that made the movie. And it's it's a, about this era uh, in the 50s and 60s, and it, it sort of makes it into the mid-70s, of uh, extremely elaborate musicals that were put on as industrials. And sometimes they would be live um, and they would fly all the salesmen uh, into New York and, 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 and it would, they would get made. like, they'd get Cheetah Rivera. They'd get, they would get major Broadway actors to take, they, you know, get Candor and Ebb. They, they, they would, they would get composers and stars to kind of slum and get a lot of money into a one night only fully staged musical. Um, and then sometimes if they couldn't get, they couldn't arrange it to fly everyone in. They would shoot it as a movie and then they would probably only make one or two prints. Cause that's all that were needed, which is why these are so rare. And then they would have regional conventions. So in 62, um, I think it was 62 or is it 61? It was 61. Uh, all right. It's 61. So Harpo and, and Mickey Rooney did, uh, this elaborate musical for the Ford motor company called got it made. And then it was never seen again. And uh, there's basically one still. And that's all we know about it. And so um, somewhere in my late night staring at the Facebook page, I started thinking, well, maybe the movie exists somewhere and someone should find it. So it just be, I, I, it just became this weird mission I sent for, I sent for myself as a kind of a way of escaping. And so I, I just started contacting all the usual suspects um and this, this is not my world i i don't i don't work in film preservation you know i don't restore movies i i don't know this it's, it's a very specific world i went to the library of congress i went to the national archives i went to the 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 uh oh i'm blanking on the name the the ford museum in De- in detroit the henry the henry ford and which is separate from the ford motor archive um I went to the Smithsonian. I, I mean, I, I went to I went to the Academy. I went to UCLA. I went I, I went to all the all the obvious ones, and I wasn't getting anywhere. I, I I tried researching, figuring out people who had worked on this movie, and this is just this is just deep deep Google. I found out that the director of the movie was a guy named Ira Marvin, who was a bit of a industrials mogul in new york in in the 60s and i uh, found out that he had he had passed away but um i thought well maybe he's got kids <laughs> and so i started this is just like it's like you end up on the black web at this point like trying to find who are the children of, of ira marvin mm-hmm. and i somehow i found two of his kids through facebook <laughs> And uh, I can't even remember one. Uh, I think one lived in France and one lived in in Amsterdam. And um, I tracked these people down, and I said, "Okay, uh, sixty years ago, your dad directed Harpo Marx and Mickey Rooney, and blah blah blah." Yeah. And when he passed away, did he have any film cans? <laughs> did one say, "Got it made"? And they were they were a little intrigued, and then they got a little perplexed, and then they kind of got bored with me, and then I stopped hearing from them. So 
there was that. Then I, um, I did more research and I found that the film was, uh, was scored by a blacklisted, uh, Hollywood guy named Edward Aliscu. And so I, I found out that he had a, it was like a self-published memoir that his son had put out after he died. And I got that one and that, that, and that one, uh, actually it's, it's kind of interesting. He, he, he was blacklisted, uh, and he sort of found himself in this phantom world where a lot of blacklisted showbiz people would end up working for Detroit and Henry Ford because Ford Motor Company had the, had the biggest studio outside of Hollywood. And they were cranking out industrial films. And then he talked in his memoir about he shot in L.A. for three weeks with Harpo and Mickey Rooney. And Mickey was was late every day, but Harpo was always on time. So I'm like, all right, well, three weeks of shooting, that's 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 a pretty big hunk of film. Mm-hmm. Talked about how it was, it was unusual to be working back in Hollywood, even though he's on the blacklist. But he's in this like weird shadow industry of working for a Detroit motor company. But it's but it's being done, you know, with all Hollywood people in in town. Um, so I I, I wasn't going to contact Edward Aliscu's son because I know the son of the composer does not have a print. I'm not going to. It's funny. Him. I'm I'm looking it up. It looks like the source of the photos that are available are from his papers, which are at uh, where am I seeing this at uh, Western Western Connecticut State University, which yes. is right by, which is right by me actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I think I might have. I, I might have uh, contacted them saying, hey, do you have any, any 35 millimeter movies lying around? Mm-hmm. And uh, they do not. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, but that, 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 that collection is the source of that photo. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, Ira Marvin later, uh, later went on to uh, sort of become a, a TV producer and best remembered for the Dukes of Hazard reunion movie. <laughs> so, and why not? And then I contacted an archivist uh, who told me about uh, it's not a web page. What, what is it? When they used to have like a BBS a news group or something? Yeah, where, where it's like a, like a limited group of people who can communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. And it's at the University of Kentucky, and it's and that's the headquarters. And so I basically sent out an SOS on this very esoteric site saying looking for got it made 1961 harpo marx musical uh length unknown uh and i know it's color and um and then i i heard and i'm, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna say the name of who has it because it's kind of gotten dragged out here but a stock house contacted me and they said we have it and it's in a can and we've never opened it and i go oh my god oh my god and um, they sent me, they pulled the printout and they sent me some screenshots and they, they've got the film. I've, I've seen, I've seen the frames from the movie. It's just under an hour. It's about 56, 57 minutes long. They are restoring the colors. They are creating brand new digital files. And uh, I wait to see how they choose to release it. But I would think that will be some point this year. Uh, Harpo's final film will appear. I think it's going to be on the Dukes of Hazard reunion box set. <laughs> <laughs> what a story. What a story. I mean, I really, you know, from the age of 10, I've been a Marx Brothers fan. And to think that, 
a Facebook group that I that I started on a whim um, at Bob's instigation. Actually, uh, should have been the the catalyst that uh, that has saved this thing from almost certain oblivion. I can't I can't tell you how how happy that makes me feel, and uh, from from everybody mm. that is that is listening to this and every Marx Brothers fan on the planet. Thank you so much for 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 what you've done. I mean, that's an incredible story. Oh, yeah. oh thank you. Yes, thanks, Scott. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of the Marx Brothers Council podcast. Thank you to Noah Diamond, Bob Cassell, and our special guest, Scott Alexander. Don't forget to check in at marxbrotherscouncilpodcast.com. Tell your friends and spread the word. Until next time, here's a classic recording from the early days of the Marx Brothers. Oh, Groucho, I'm very happy you're going to sing with me. Dinah, you're happy about everything. <laughs> That's not true. Why don't you try being miserable for a change? <laughs> that works out who knows maybe next year you could start crying on the show oh come on Groucho. maybe on this show you'll start crying yeah, well the evening is young yet yes it is yeah. i wish i was yeah. uh, <laughs> what are we going to sing Groucho? dinah dinah it's impossible uh, we could never sing together why not well it's very simple i only sing in the shower <laughs> how about peasy wheezy Easy, weezy. No, no, don't be alarmed. It's, it's the first song I ever sang in Vaudeville. Is I was about 15 years old. Aww. As a matter of fact, I sang it at your house one night. Oh, that Peasy Weezy. Yes, that was the night George kicked me out, remember? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what he'll do now. Well, he'll probably do it over again. I'll tell you how you sing this song. Uh-huh. I sing three lines and you do the punchline. Uh-huh. And you sing three lines and I... And it goes uh-huh. on and on Okay, like okay. Uh, Mr. Truman, if you please, huh? <laughs> Fishing last Sunday and I caught a smelt Put him in the pan and the fire he felt Of all the smells I ever smelt Well? I never smelt a smelt like that smell smelt Easy Weezy, what's his name? Easy Weezy, Peasy Weezy, what's his game? He will get you if he can Peasy Weezy Peasy is a bold bad man. Oh, a doctor named Henry Peck fell in the well and he broke his neck. Yeah, man. Put his own ball, you all must own. Well, he should attend to the sick and let the well alone. Peasy Shall we? Yeah. I'm gonna make the trip in a Chevrolet.